Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, we're going to get into the Word today. I hope you've enjoyed the last few weeks of this series. Uh, we have been in a series, if you're new and joining us for the first time today, uh, we've been in a series for the last few weeks studying the book of 1 John, uh, the very uncomfortable book of 1 John. And uh, we have titled this series, Am I Going to Heaven? Uh, perhaps the most important question that any of us will face in this life. I've said every single week, and I'll say again, there comes a moment in life where people have to ask themselves, is eternity real? And if eternity is real, where am I going to spend it? And for those of us who have concluded that eternity is a real thing, uh, that everyone is going to go either up or down, as my daughter shared a couple of weeks ago, uh, if we've been those that have decided that heaven is not some glib hope for the optimists or, you know, some coping mechanism for those that feel like there's a lot of pain in this planet, we're just hoping that something better is after this life. But in fact, heaven and hell are real places. Then the obvious next question we must be able to answer, the most important question is what does it take to get there? If that's a real place, how am I to be the person who ends up in the right zone? I wanna make sure that I'm gonna spend an eternity with Christ. And I've said this again every week and I will continue to say it every week. It is my hope, my desire, my conviction, my wife and I and our leadership team, we want every person in this church to be able to say with confidence, I know that I know that I know that my eternity is spoken for, that I am spending an eternity with Jesus in heaven. We want that confidence in every heart. And so this series, we've been looking at the book of 1 John because it's not just my heart as a communicator here on a Sunday morning, but it is the heart of God and it is the heart of the author of this book in 1 John. Um, our key text that we've been looking at for the last few weeks is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where the apostle John writes, uh, my purpose in writing is simply this, that you who believe in God's son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life, the reality, and not the illusion. And as we've shared, that word know in the Greek is the word edo, and it means to be convinced of by examination or inspection. We want to discover by examining our lives and inspecting our lives, according to what John has written here, we wanna know that our eternity is spoken for. This whole book is a man in the mirror moment. We're asking ourselves, do we need to change our ways? And as we read this text, if we find that there are discrepancies in our life compared to what he's writing and the way that he's saying we should live, then we want to take a look at ourselves and make that change. <laughs> that's, that's the job of this book. And we've done that. <laughs> that was horrible. I don't sound anything like Michael Jackson. Um, but we've done that for the last few weeks. We've looked at what John shared with us about light and darkness. Uh, are we going to be people who uh, just visit the light or are we going to be residents of the light? And we concluded that uh, we will live in the light as he is in the light. Uh, in week two, we talked about obedience and that Hebrew word shema, which means to listen and to obey. We don't want to be those who just hear the word of God and let it go in one ear and out the other, but we want to be those that truly obey God's word. And if we find that our obedience is lacking, it isn't a falling back in line problem. It's a falling back in love with Jesus problem because love ultimately compels us to 
live our lives a certain way. And last week, we talked about that word love even further. We looked at the four different Greek words for love and asked ourselves the all uncomfortable question, do I love God the right way? Do I have the right kind of love for God? And if in that uncomfortable mirror moment, we discovered that our love for God was lacking, then we found ourselves wanting to encounter his love again. You cannot force yourself to love anybody. It is not something that we can do in and of our own flesh, in and of our own volition. No, we need to look upon Jesus. We need to encounter his love because once we have received it, we can reciprocate it. Today, uh, we are going to look at the last portion excuse me, of chapter two. And uh, we're gonna conclude that section before going into chapter three next week. And in true transparency, um, I did not intend to teach through this portion of the book. Uh, when I read it, as if everything else hasn't been aggressive enough already, I really felt like this section was like over the top aggressive. And I'm like, I don't wanna do that. That's uncomfortable for me. Also, I felt like the content was a little irrelevant. It was archaic. It was kind of something that happened back then and it's not as relevant today. Uh, but I, I gotta tell you, as I studied through it this week, I determined, and I think you'll see today, that this is an incredibly relevant portion of 1 John, and it's something that absolutely applies to our modern context. So, once again, we're going to put on our big boy pants, and we're going to go to the Word, and we're going to hear from the Apostle John as he beats us up a little bit. Are you up for it? All right, here we go. <laughs> uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us in the first place. Can we pause there for a moment? Is that not the most Christian cancel culture statement you've ever heard in your life? First century John getting all 21st century cancel-y on us, you know? Well, you know, when they left our church, it just proved that they didn't really belong with us in the first place. Like, you, you weren't really ever a part of our family. Like, we didn't care about you that much. You could just go, all right? I don't care. See if I care. Like, this is such a little, like, I'm taking my ball and going home kind of statement. And then, to make matters worse, he doesn't just leave it there, but he actually calls the people who left the church antichrists. <laughs> this has got to be a pastor's, like, favorite portion of scripture, you know? This is, a, this is a portion of scripture that I have wanted to quote to people so many times when they decide that they want to leave our church, all right? Someone's like, oh, you guys aren't deep enough in your teaching. You know, I don't like the culture around there. I don't like the worship songs you guys do. Like, you know, graciously, we should just be like, hey, see you later. But I really wanted to quote this scripture to some people, you know, like under my breath as they're leaving. All right, hey, have a good one. We'll never see you again. Antichrist. What? <laughs> what did you just say? Nothing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just... Okay, see you later. Antichrist. Like, <laughs> But I would never say anything like that. That's so, I mean, it's so rude. It's absolutely rude. Like I meditated on it. I thought about it, but I never said it, but not John. John just comes out and shares his emotions. He calls these people who've bounced antichrist. So let that sink in if you're considering leaving the church. <laughs> Moving on, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who dies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I know it's getting a little bit deep here and we're going around in a lot of circles. We'll, we'll, we'll break this all down. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. 
Okay, a lot there to break down. We don't have a lot of time to do it, so we're gonna jump right in. If you are a note taker today and you like titles, we're gonna call this one The Essential Oil. The Essential Oil. I'm coming for all you doTERRA folks today, all right? Straight for the throat. But there's probably an oil for that. Let me pray. <laughs> one more time, we'll pray and get into it. Jesus, help us to receive your word today. Uh, I know that sometimes the content in your word is difficult to receive. It's offensive to receive. Uh, in fact, even when you walked this planet, you said uh, that many were offended by your teaching and because of their offense, they weren't able to receive from you. But may that not be said of us today. Maybe we, may we be those with open hearts and open minds to receive what you want to speak to us so that we can be changed before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the phrase antichrist. I mean, you probably didn't come to church this morning thinking we were gonna talk about the antichrist. Uh, but when that phrase comes to mind, there's probably a lot of images that run through people's minds. Um, I, uh, when I hear that phrase, I immediately go to some of those weird commercials or some of those things that we've you know, seen in the previews leading up to the movie with like head spinning and like weird demonic images. And I don't watch any of those movies just to be, I don't know how a Christian can watch any of those movies. If they, listen, let me just hold on. Let me take a little step back here for a moment. Come on, we got the spirit of Jesus inside of us. Why would we watch, like intentionally allow fear to come into our lives by watching these horror movies and stuff? But, you know, no condemnation if that's what you do. Maybe just a little bit of condemnation. Um, but I just, I can't watch that stuff. It messes with my dreams. It messes with my head. It messes with my spirit. And I'm just way too close to Jesus to watch that stuff. So... <laughs> But when I hear that phrase, that's the kind of stuff that goes through my head, antichrist. And if you're like me, and when you hear antichrist, those images of like these demonic films or, you know, spinning heads or weird stuff starts coming into your brain, then like me, you would likely be tempted to skip over this portion of 1 John because it might seem somewhat irrelevant. Uh, you know, another sermon for another day, but we might say, hey, you know, in America, we don't deal with, you know, overtly demon demonic things like that. We, you know, our demons are hidden. They're, they're masked, they're painted, they're made up. We've got some different kind of demonic activity in our culture. Uh, but, you know, maybe overseas in some of those other nations where it's a little more overt, or maybe in John's day, it was obvious that there were all these demonic things taking place. But, you know, we don't necessarily need to mess with this section of the scripture. Well, we would be wrong to conclude that we don't need to talk about this word, Antichrist if our assumption is that John is talking about something obvious and overt. Because actually what John is talking about is something that is far more subtle and was incredibly pervasive in their culture, especially in the church. In fact, even the definition of that word is not something so obvious and demonic. It's actually something much more common and ordinary. Uh, in the Greek, the word antichrist or antichristo is anyone or anything that rejects Jesus. And by inference, anything or anyone who attempts to draw you away from Jesus. Anything or anyone who rejects Jesus and anything that tries to draw you away from Jesus. In fact, John goes on to give definition to that, to confirm it in verse 22, when he says, anyone who denies the Father and the Son doesn't just engage with the Antichrist, they are an Antichrist. They are someone who is opposing, rejecting the person of Jesus. That's a pretty broad brushstroke for that word, right? <laughs> like anyone or anything that rejects Jesus. When, when we hear that definition, like there's a lot of stuff that could fall into the category of Antichrist. Just, you know, thinking about our world from, even as I say that, maybe you're like, yo, 
I might have some antichrists in my life. <laughs> some things or some people that are trying to draw me away from Jesus. Like, uh, I don't want any antichrists. I know you're dating that guy right now and he told you his name was Devin. But based on the way he's trying to draw you away from Jesus, maybe you need to change that N to an L. Devil, that's right, yeah. He's the antichrist. Get thee behind me, Stephen, okay? You know what I mean? Because if that's really the definition, there's a lot of stuff that could fall into the category of antichrist. Think about our culture. At large, we are a culture that rejects the supremacy, the authority of Jesus. Our governmental structures, they reject Jesus. Our social systems, they reject Jesus. If you think about the hierarchy of success, the normalization of perversion, the over-sexualization of our culture, self-obsession, self-harm, pride, all of it falls into the category of rejecting the idea that we should submit our lives completely and totally to this man named Jesus that walked the planet a couple thousand years ago, died on a cross, and resurrected for our sins. We live in a culture that is stewing with this antichrist spirit. So this was not just some first century problem. This is still a 21st century problem today. In fact, I think the more we understand about the culture and the context that John was writing to, the more relevant this particular portion of scripture becomes. Because yes, as we've seen, John was writing this, his purpose for writing this letter was to establish a sense of eternal confidence that people would know that we're going to heaven. But the provocation of his letter, the reason he had to write this was because there were a lot of antichrists, if you will, in their culture. Specifically, a group of people that was trying to sway the minds and hearts of the believers in the church. At this time in history, uh, there was a growing popularity for a faction uh, that was heretical in the church known as the Gnostics, or Gnosticism was the general belief. And the Gnostics were these who kind of swept into the church. They were the toxic ones in the congregation, and they were trying to draw the hearts and minds of the Christians away from God to buy into this false doctrine or this false ideology. And their general consensus, their, their thesis statement was this, all matter is evil and the human spirit is innately good. So the body, bad, creation, bad, microphone, bad, TV, bad, all of this is bad, but the human spirit in and of itself is good. Now, that may not sound all that toxic. In fact, it might even sound somewhat spiritual. But the way that that thought process and that conviction manifested itself was very damaging and, in fact, very damning to the believer. In fact, there were three very specific ways that this idea of matter being bad and the spirit being good absolutely harmed the hearts and minds of the church. Number one, that belief, it denied Christ's humanity denied the humanity of Christ and said, okay, if the body is bad, then Jesus could not have shown up in human flesh because Jesus could not have been bad. So it denied his humanity. It denied the fact that he was fully God and fully man. In fact, they believed that not that Jesus didn't walk the planet. There was no denying that. They were around when it happened, but they said that he was walking the planet as a spirit and that all of this was for show. When he died on the cross, it was like an act of a spirit pretending to actually die, but he never really died, which is how he resurrected. It denied the humanity of Christ. To deny his human body is to deny his death, and to deny his death is to deny his resurrection. 
But we all know that that doesn't work. That does not compute. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the apostle Paul says, hey, if Christ has not been actually risen from the dead, if he did not come in the flesh, die, and then resurrect from the dead in the flesh, then everything we're doing is completely useless and we're to be pitied more than any other group on the planet. We've bought into the biggest form of deception on planet earth. So this idea of a spirit-only Christ denied his humanity and caused the believer to say, okay, well, maybe God didn't actually send a human son to give his life, which means we are still stuck in our sins. Problem. Number two, it manifested itself in such a way that it separated physical actions from our spiritual condition. And this is a big one. If the body is bad, but the spirit is good, you can do whatever you want with the body without it affecting your spiritual condition. The Gnostics were some of the most indulgent people on planet earth. They believed that regardless of what they did in the flesh, it did not affect their eternity because the spirit is actually good. So by all means, live up this life, sleep with whomever you wanna sleep with, drink as much as you wanna drink, do whatever you want to do to your body because it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, your spirit is good. You're going to go to heaven no matter how bad you act in your body. So you might as well enjoy the things that this world has to offer. Carpe diem, YOLO, whatever phrase you want in there. That is how they lived their lives. But again, we know according to scripture, that ain't right. That is not the way we're supposed to live our lives. I know that John Mayer said your body is a wonderland, but the apostle Paul said your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and we are to honor God with our bodies. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Don't engage in the lust of the flesh. Do not be drunk with wine. The way we treat our physical bodies absolutely has some bearing on our spiritual condition. In fact, Jesus taught, and the book of Proverbs teaches, furthermore, that our actions are nothing more than a manifestation of our spiritual condition. If our body is bad, it is revealing that our heart is bad, that our spirit is a little bit wrecked. And it doesn't mean that our spirit is fine and we can do whatever we want, but it's actually like an indicator that we need to clean up the spirit a little bit because ultimately our actions are the byproduct of what's taking place in our hearts and in our spirits. And even if there was not a single scripture in the Bible that pointed to that reality, those of us who have spent some time abusing our bodies and doing some things with it that we know we shouldn't have done, we all understand that that does not make us feel any closer to Jesus. Jesus, but that our spiritual condition suffers and we feel miles away from him, not closer and confident that we are gonna end up in heaven one day. We know this to be true. So the Gnostics said, hey, do what you want with your body. It doesn't really matter. And that does not work. And lastly, this idea of matter being bad and the spirit being good, it manifested itself in spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance. The Gnostics believed that this special knowledge had been given to them that they came to this revelation, this enlightenment, this epiphany, and because of this enlightenment, they pitied all of those who did not have the same ideology as they did. They, they stood on their high horses and they looked down at the Christians and any of the other plebeians that would believe in some nonsense that they had bought into. But they had arrived at this special place of knowledge and so as a result, the Gnostics were some of the most arrogant and prideful people in the community. They were the know-it-alls among the church. But again, the Bible says, God gives grace to the humble, but he rejects the proud. Jesus did not 
and enlist the services of the most educated, the most put together, those who had greater human knowledge than everybody else. He went to fishermen. He went to people that were broke and never had any education. He enlisted those who were the least of society to be his disciples. And as if that wasn't enough, he actually entrusted to them the great authority of preaching the good news to the broken world. Come on, how many grateful today that God does not choose the educated, the put together, the perfect, those who have their lives all straight and narrow, but come on, he'll take the broken, he'll take the depressed, he'll take those that the world has rejected and said, I will use you to build my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Come on, I'm grateful for that today. And this, is the, this was the general consensus of Gnosticism. The idea that matter's bad, the spirit's good, and it manifested itself in such a way where people were spiritually arrogant, they were able to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies, excuse their actions, and they rejected Jesus. So you can see why I would say that in understanding John's context, we actually have a bit more application to our world than we might care to admit. By understanding what was happening in their world, it becomes pretty obvious to me that our world is still dealing with a lot of the same issues. We still have a world that rejects Jesus at large. We still have a culture that believes you can do whatever you want to do with your body and it will not affect your spiritual condition. And we still have a world that elevates human wisdom, that thinks that education and knowledge is the greatest idol we can bow down to. But the question is not whether or not this exists in our culture. John was not rebuking the culture for their sin. We shall not be surprised when sinners sin. This is what the world around us does. Hey, let me remind all you Christians, you don't need to clean up the people that don't know Jesus yet, all right? It's not your job to fix those that are broken. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You can entrust that to him. Let's not get a little weirded out when people around us and our neighbors are throwing F-bombs and people, are, no, come on, sinner's gonna sin. That's a, sinner's gonna sin, 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 sin. sin. Like, that's how they're gonna do it. So dumb. <laughs> no, he was talking to the church. He, he was not surprised that the Gnostic mindset existed in their world. He was surprised that it existed in the church. That Gnosticism had bled into the hearts and minds of the believers. So, as we've done every week, let us consider a very uncomfortable question. Is there any hint of Gnosticism in you? Is there any hint of these three core beliefs manifesting themselves in your life. Maybe you got the first one figured out. Maybe the first one's like, oh no, I believe Jesus came in the flesh and he died on the cross for me. And okay, check, we got that one. How about those other two? <laughs> How are we treating our bodies? Do we actually live our lives in such a way where it proves that we understand our actions do affect our spiritual condition? Is the Saturday night version of you the same as the Sunday morning version of you? Is the workplace versions of you the same as the worship place version of you? Come on, somebody. Because if not, you might be a Gnostic. I was Jeff Foxworthy, for those of you who are trying to figure out where that accent came from. Or how about the special knowledge? How about this idea that education is the most important thing in this life? What matters more to you, education 
or impartation? What matters most to you, a textbook or the good book? (laughs) Let me talk to our San Francisco culture for just a moment. A group of people that really like to know some stuff. A group of people that really like to get into the right schools and land the right job and be at the top of the food chain. And all of life is about chasing success and knowing more than anybody else. And the more letters you have behind your name, the better you are off. Let me talk to some parents that are pressuring their children when it comes to their education and trying to live a dream through their kids that they never achieved on their own. Let me talk to a culture, and I'm not gonna throw any kind of nationality under the bus, but a culture that tries to idolize education as if it is the most important thing in this life. Listen, if we are not careful, we will set the word of God and the principles of God and the things of the spirit at a lower level than education in our culture, and we will make that our God instead of him. I remember when Robin and I were first getting ready to start the church, um, we were doing like these recruiting meetings where we would get together with some folks, have coffee, have a meal, have a meal and we were trying to you know, build the team and bring some folks to help us uh, launch this church. And there was a couple that had come to one of our interest meetings and they asked if we would like to come with them to have lunch at their workplace. Remember those days? Remember those of you who work in tech where your bosses used to feed you every single day? And that was my favorite, man. I'd get invited. John invited me to his workplace. And I think, Harry, if you're watching, you invited me to your workplace. And I got to compare the chefs at all of these different places. It was great. My favorite part of being a pastor. Um, that's not true. Uh, but uh, we went, uh, one of them worked for Google and the other one worked for Salesforce. And so we went to the one market building downtown and we joined him for lunch over there. And uh, we were sitting down and enjoying a great meal and some amazing conversation. We were there for about an hour. And I mean, everything was gelling. You ever been in one of those conversations where you're like, okay, like this girl is gonna go out with me. Or, you know, like this one is, this is, this is working right now. And it just felt like everything was working right. We were sharing our vision and our story. And we're like, these guys are gonna be an incredible part of the team. They were musicians and we needed some musicians at the time. But about the end of the conversation, uh, they asked a question. And after this question, it completely changed the dynamic of the conversation. Uh, they were engaged and the engaged guy looked at me and he said, hey, so, so where did you go to seminary? <sighs> I said, well, funny story, <laughs> I didn't. And that might be shocking to some of you right now. Maybe not, you're like, no, I knew you didn't go to seminary based on the way you teach. But <laughs> there's a reason they call it cemetery. Uh, but, I said, oh, I didn't. And he's like, whoa, what do you mean you didn't? I said, well, uh, in my early 20s, I started a business and uh, the business actually worked out really well. And I had no intention of ever becoming a pastor. I thought I was gonna be a business guy for the rest of my life. And uh, you know, we still own the business and I still work in it. And so I didn't really get around to going to cemetery, seminary because I, I didn't really plan this for my life. But you know, a little over a decade ago, my pastor looked at my wife and I and he shared with us you know, uh, that he saw some, some ministry on our lives. And so we said yes and we kind of stepped into it. And honestly, I just kind of, ended up here. I just kept saying yes to the call of God. And one day he asked us to plant a church in San Francisco. And so here we are. And I could tell as I was sharing with him, like the, the smile began to turn into like a grimace. And then, you know, he was just kind of staring at me and, you know, doing the little nod of his head. Like, I don't like anything that you're saying right now. 
And so I tried to sell them and I'm like, yo, listen, but here's the deal. Like I was in this internship program with my pastor and he taught us theology and he taught me how to preach. And uh, by the way, you know, I did what the Bible said. I studied myself to, to show myself approved and I know my doctrine and I'm convinced of what, I know the Bible really well. You know, I'm trying to sell. Like I, I promise I belong, you know, among the church leadership. Like I, I'm, I'm okay. But they were not having it, man. So at the end of the conversation, uh, we left and I looked at Robin. I'm like, hey, uh, I don't think these guys are going to join our church. And sure enough, they informed us that uh, we were not the right kind of community for them. We were not the right kind of pastors for them. I found out later that they never got married. They broke off their engagement. I'm not saying the two are related. I'm just, <laughs> just, just an observation. That's right. Just an observation. The Lord looks out for the man of God. <laughs> but what is that? Maybe you're even uncomfortable as I shared that. Like, wait, you didn't, you're not like educated? <laughs> <laughs> I present myself very well, don't I? Yes. What is that? That's pride. That's arrogance. That's a form of Gnosticism. This idea that I'm better than everybody else because of what I know. So let me ask you again. Is there any hint of Gnosticism in us, in the church of Jesus Christ? Is there any hint of it in you, in your life, in my life? And if so, how are we going to deal with that? What does it take to purge this damaging and damning theology that tries to seep its way into the hearts and minds of believers? Well, John actually answers that question right here at the conclusion of his letter, He's, or at least of this chapter. He goes on to tell us exactly what we need to do if Gnosticism has seeped in to our hearts and minds. Here's what he says, 1 John 20, 2 verse 20. But remember, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you, you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. As for you, the anointing you receive from him, it remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. John tells us clearly how to address the lies of Gnosticism right here. And here, if I could condense it down into a take-home statement, here it is. If you're writing notes down, take this one. The antidote is the anointing. The antidote to the spirit of Gnosticism that is still alive and well in our world is the anointing. John says, remember you have received an anointing. You're not like those jokers who left the church and got swept up into the lies. No, you know the truth and you received the truth at the time of your anointing. You have been anointed with truth and it was not a counterfeit. It wasn't something that you had to try to figure out. You actually don't need anyone to teach you by intuition because of the anointing, you know the truth. So remember that, which begs the question, what then is anointing? Now, depending on your spiritual background, that could mean a lot of different things. <laughs> All the Pentecostals just woke up right there, like talking about anointing. Hey, Shoto. Like, because <laughs> if you're a Pentecostal, the anointing 
It's something like when the Holy Ghost hits you in church and you just start doing laps around the sanctuary. Like, oh, the anointing. <laughs> and that's how you run. If you are of a hyper-charismatic background, then the anointing is something that is reserved for a select few that have a specific call to do something great in the kingdom. You are anointed and appointed for the call of God. That's, that's the anointing. If you're a Baptist, uh, you have no idea what the anointing <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Baptist, <laughs> you're scared of the anointing, you run from the anointing because Jesus was the anointed one. Get theological here. Jesus was the anointed one. No one needs any anointing now because Jesus already took care of that. So depending on your spiritual background, you might have a different definition for the anointing. Well, let me give you a biblical, not a spiritual or denominational, but a biblical definition for the anointing. Write this down. Anointing is the God-given ability for the God-given task. It's the God-given ability for the God-given task. If God wants you to be able to do something that in and of yourself, in your flesh, you are incapable of doing, then he has to endow you supernaturally with the ability to pull that off. It is the God-given ability for the God-given task. And we see this all throughout scripture. People who were regular old Joes that God called to do something great and they needed the anointing to pull it off. God called Aaron to be the high priest for Israel and he was anointed to do it. God called Saul to be king and he was anointed so that he could become king. Samuel comes to David, the least of his brothers, the guy that nobody thought would be king and he anoints him to become king. The anointing was the God-given ability for the God-given task. Now, all throughout scripture, it wasn't just something that people woke up to one day and like, whoa, I have an anointing, like a superpower that they just all of a sudden realized took place in their life. There was actually an event, a moment, a symbolic act where they were anointed for the task. And all throughout scripture, that symbolic act involved the pouring of oil. They were anointed on their head with oil. Now, it's been two weeks since I had a sermon illustration, and you know how much I like my bag of tricks. So rather than explain to you how this works, I'm actually gonna show you how this works right here. So Bryson, if you could put on that poncho and come up to stage. Uh, Eric, if you could grab all of my little bits and pieces over there. Let me explain to you how this works. You got that? <laughs> I need a kiddie pool, bring that over, yes. Uh, you could grab my vat of oil over there. That would be great. So when Aaron was anointed to be priest, the Lord told Moses to pour oil over his head. When, <laughs> when Samuel uh, anointed Saul to be king, oil was poured over his head. When David was called to be king, oil was poured over his head. Again, this was a symbolic act that represented God is going to anoint you. He's giving you an ability to do something that in and of yourself you are incapable of doing. It was a supernatural moment. In and of the flesh, there's a lot of things that Bryson can't do. Let me, I'm gonna look at you for a moment. In and of the flesh, there's a lot of stuff you can't do. All the things that God has called you into, you can't pull those off by yourself. You, you, I know you lift weights, but you're not strong enough. <laughs> I know you've been through a whole lot in the military, but you don't even have the, the fortitude in and of your flesh to pull off what God's called you to do. But God has called you to do some great things. 
God's called you to lead. God's called you to be a bridge from those that have walked through what you've walked through that need to step into what he has for them. God's called you to be a man that raises up other men and shows them what it looks like to love Jesus and to live humbly and to be sensitive at the same time to the spirit of God. God has broken off all the hard edges of your life and the callous heart and he's made your heart soft so that you can receive from him. And he's gonna use every single one of those things to bring him glory. And not just one day out there in the future, I believe, and I think many would attest to this, that you are on a fast track in your life right now. God has brought you out of darkness and into light and matured you quickly because he wants to use you for great things. And you know this because you've shared it with me, but it's not in some faraway city. No, it's here. It's at this church. It's in this city. God is going to use you to see dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people come from darkness to life, to rob them from hell and bring them into heaven, to come out of that grave. That's what God's called you to do. But you can't do that in your own flesh. You can't do that in and of yourself. You need an anointing. And so when God called somebody to do something that they could not pull off in their flesh, he said, I want somebody who represents a spiritual authority to take that individual and to pour oil on their head. And the pouring on of this oil, yeah, it's just some weird thing that takes place in the natural, but it's a supernatural and symbolic act. There is an impartation taking place so that this person can do the very thing that God has called them to do. So I'm asking you to lean over the tub there. There you go. Let's get a little closer here so I don't ruin a building that we don't own yet. All right. And Bryson, we believe this for you. And so we anoint you today to walk in the fullness of what God has for your life. Oh. <laughs> now, that's just Wesson on a rented stage on a Sunday morning. But we don't know what God's doing in his heart right now. We don't know what God is entrusting to him even in this moment. Let me get you a towel so you can wipe yourself off and make yourself presentable because you're single and there's some single ladies here. We need to make sure you take care of. Okay, come on. Yeah, draw yourself off. Thank you, man. Now, that might be weird to watch, even more weird to participate in. But John says that that took place for every single one of us. That this was not some moment that was reserved for a select few people, but that all of us have been anointed. All of us have been given a God-given ability for a God-given task. And what is the task that he shares with us in this scripture? It is to discern truth. That task is in your life. It is, it is mandated by the Holy Spirit. One of your greatest jobs is to understand the difference between the lies of the enemy and the truth of God's word. When you came to know Jesus and you surrendered your life to him, in the spirit there was a moment where there was some oil poured over your head. The word that John uses in this scripture, it literally means to be anointed with oil. It's chrisma. And it means to be smeared or to be poured on with oil. In the spirit, there was a moment where you said yes to Jesus and he poured some oil on your head so that your mind could be renewed, so that you could understand the difference between truth and lies. And he says, you don't need anybody to teach you anymore. That doesn't mean you don't need to come to church. You don't need a pastor. I think everybody needs a pastor. We need to be in the house of God and hear from the word of God. But he's saying that you have an intuition now by the Holy Spirit so that you understand when lies of this world try to come at you, you can look at those lies square 
square in the face and you can say, I'm sorry, that doesn't align with the word of God that I have submitted my life to. I know the difference between the truth and a lie because I have been anointed. I know what it looks like to understand truth. And this is why John says you need to remember this. Remember that you have been anointed. In fact, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, remember it and remain in it. I love that phrase. Remain in it. Remain in the anointing. Stay underneath the oil. Don't let your head get out from underneath the oil. Again, last thought before we conclude. If you're taking notes, write this down. When the flowing stops, the knowing stops. When you get out from underneath this oil, suddenly truth doesn't make sense anymore. Suddenly you begin to get swept up in the lies of your culture and of the lies of the enemy. Can I tell you the number one reason Christians get deceived? It's because they get out from underneath the oil. They get out from underneath the presence of God. They get out from underneath the community of God. They get out from underneath the word of God. They get out from underneath the communication through prayer with God. When you stop getting your head under that oil, when you leave that place, lies begin to seep in and they will twist your life up. And when that happens, you know what, you know what the next step is? Suddenly the very basic Christian things to do seem impossibly difficult. The oil makes it easy. But when you aren't under the oil any longer, you don't even know how to live for Jesus anymore. You need this oil. It is the essential oil. I, ben can come and I'll conclude with this. My, um, my wife, uh, a couple years ago, she got really into all of the um, essential oil stuff. And uh, you can tell I'm clearly a believer. Um, and, you know, we, we started buying all the oils for different ailments and, you know, modern, modern medicine got thrown out the window and it's like, oh, well, there's an oil for that. There's an oil for that. There's an oil for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my, my oldest daughter, um, when my wife was really into the oils, um, she got really used to the idea of being oiled up before she went to bed. And that was how she was able to fall asleep. She needed oil to, to fall asleep. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. Listen, if you love the oils, you, you do your thing, okay? Uh, my Bible says that I will lie down and sleep in peace and the Lord will keep me safe. But if you need frankincense or lavender or whatever, you know, like by, by all means, you do, you do you. But my daughter was convinced that she needed this oil to go to sleep. And so even to this day, years later, if she has a difficult time sleeping, after we put her to bed, uh, she will come out of her room, which is every parent's freaking nightmare. They hate it when their kids come out of the room after they put them to bed. And she'll say, I need, I need some oils. I, I can't sleep unless I have the oils. The task that she's been assigned seems impossible unless she has the oil. And maybe you're here today and you would say, listen, I, I, I don't have any problem sleeping. Maybe you do. But maybe there's some other tasks. There's some other things in your life that seem impossible right now. Maybe it seems impossible to buy into your true identity what the word of God has to say about your life. Maybe it seems impossible to believe that you have been forgiven by God. Maybe the lies of your culture are seeping in and you find some hints of Gnosticism in you. Well, to borrow a line from my wife, there's an oil for that. There is an oil for that. And it's not an oil that you're unfamiliar with. It's not an oil that came from a hippie mom. It's an oil that came from your heavenly father the moment you said yes to him. And you placed your head under that anointing and he began to pour that oil 
you've received the Holy Spirit, you know the truth today. So my commission to you is to get back under that flow. Remember that you have been anointed and remain under the flow of oil so that you are not swayed from the truth of God's word any longer. In fact, I wanna pray that over you as we conclude today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I wanna pray for our church. And then of course, I will make an opportunity for those that need to come home to Jesus today to pray with them as well. Lord, I ask today that our community here would know the truth. You said we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. I pray over the Father's house, every mind, every heart, Lord, that we would not be swayed by the enemy that tries to steal, kill, and destroy everything that you want to do in our lives. But Lord, that we would know you, we would submit our lives to you. And Lord, just as we've seen visually here, we would keep our heads under that oil, that we would continue to submit ourselves to your word. We would continue to submit ourselves to your presence. We continue to lay our head under the community that you've entrusted to us. And Lord, that we would not allow those those hooks of the enemy to draw us out from underneath the oil. And even as I'm praying that today, as we conclude, there's probably some people who would say, hey, I have not had that moment. I've not had that moment where I've been anointed to know the truth. I've not had that moment where I've received the God-given ability for the God-given task. Or maybe years ago I did, but man, I've been out from underneath that oil for a really long time. And you know in your heart right now, because it's pounding, that you need to come back to Jesus. This is the most important moment at church on any given Sunday. This is when those that are far from him come home. And if that is you today, if you find yourself at a distance and you know you need to say yes to him before you leave this place, I wanna pray a very simple prayer with you before we conclude. But before we do that, I just like to see who I'm praying with. And no one's looking around, this isn't to embarrass you, but just so that I know who we're praying with today, would you do me a favor? If you need to come home to Jesus, would you quickly lift your hand and look up at me so that I can pray with you before we conclude? Right on, man, thank you, thank you. Anybody else today? And if you're watching online, again, same thing, you don't have to raise your hand in your living room, but you can pray this prayer with me in your heart. Just repeat this after me today. Say, Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross so that I could be set free. And today I fully surrender my life to you. I lay my head under that oil. I wanna know the truth. And according to your word, I wanna be set free by that truth. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways. Lead me from this day forward until I see you in heaven because I know that's where I'm going. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we just thank God for everybody who said yes to him today? Oh, come on, you can do a little better than that. Angels are doing backflips in heaven. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer, um, again, there is one of these cards near you. And uh, before you conclude today, before you leave, uh, we really wanna help you take your very next steps. We are incredibly passionate about that around here. We've got a whole roadmap for your life. And we, we know that this is the most important decision you've ever made. And we wanna make sure that you follow through on it the best way possible. So before you leave, if you could grab one of those cards and check the box that said, I made a decision to follow Jesus today. As you check that box uh, and you can bring it back to our connect area, we're gonna put a Bible in your hand, give it to you for free. And we're gonna tell you about something called First 40. We believe the first 40 days of your journey are some of the most important days on planet earth. And we have like a personal coach relationship with you where we teach you how to read the Bible, how to pray, what it looks like to be a part of Christian community. And uh, again, your very next step, as we saw today, is to be water 
baptized. We do that every single weekend here at the church and we'd love to do that with you. So you can check that box as well if you've not been water baptized. If you're watching online, all of that is available through the link at the bottom of the YouTube page uh, that, that you can click as well. Uh, for the rest of us, why don't we stand to our feet and we are gonna conclude today. Uh, if you need prayer, we're gonna have our whole team down here. We'd love to pray with you before you leave for anything that you might need prayer with. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming once again to the live service on Sunday morning. Have an amazing Sunday and we will see you next week, same time, same place. Have a good one. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.